trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief, loss, domestic abuse and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I've spoken about domestic abuse on the Just Checking In pod through a female lens before, but my special guest for this week's episode is going to blow your mind with the research she has uncovered about domestic abuse. Her name is Deborah Powney. She's a final year PhD candidate in psychology and is a mature academic researcher and research psychologist specialising in impact and recovery in male and female victims of partner abuse and coercive control. She seeks to understand the reasons why men and women abuse, what we can do about it, and seeks to break down the myths that exist within this conversation in the public sphere. Deborah's desire to be a domestic abuse researcher came from her own experience of being domestically abused by her first husband for five and a half years. After she got out of that relationship, she then spent six years being dragged through the court system by him before she could escape his influence and spending hundreds of thousands of pounds in legal fees to fight her case in the process. Because of that expense, she represented herself in court for four years of that process. Now, to give you a sense of how draining that was, the police removed him from her property on the 1st of January 2012. The final court hearing was on the 18th of March 2018. Deborah said the reason she was abused had nothing to do with her gender and everything to do with her ex-husband's narcissistic personality disorder. In part one of this episode, we talk about this chapter of her life and why she pushes back against the idea of gender-based violence. The myths which are present in the conversation around male victims of domestic abuse and the wider conversation, her lived experience of PTSD, post-traumatic growth and the impact that losing both her parents had on her during and after the period of domestic abuse and the impact that losing her brother to suicide had on her too. Deborah is a fascinating and incredible woman, and I wanted to cover absolutely everything Deborah wanted to discuss, which is why I've split this podcast into part one and part two. What she said blew my mind in so many ways and really educated me on the truth behind some of the established narratives on domestic abuse for men and for women. So, this is how part one of my conversation with Deborah Powney went. <laughs> Deborah Powney, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. The pre-pod call we had was the longest I've Sorry. ever done with a guest. <laughs> so I, I know this is going to be a good podcast. How are you? How yeah, are you getting on? Yeah, good. It's a bit strange to think we're in December already in this seemingly two-year pandemic. But uh, yeah, end of the year already. Never ending, is it? <laughs> We've got so, so much to talk about, Debs, and... I wanted to make sure we cover absolutely everything in this podcast. So without further ado and delay, shall we just crack on with the show? The desire for you to become an academic on domestic abuse, Debs, comes from your own personal experience. So I think it's right we talk about your own sort of mental health journey Mm. first. But let's wind the clock a little bit before that abuse happened to you. So tell me about early life, teenage years, family and 
Looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Deborah we meet here? I suppose the Deborah you meet here is scarred yet rounded, I would say. I like that phrase. Um, <laughs> my early life was very ordinary. Mum, dad, dad went out and earned the money. Mum looked after the house. Traditional roles completely, then. In the, in, completely in that sort traditional of yeah, roles. Yeah. However, that wasn't something that was forced upon us it was just the way they were in fact my mum and particularly my dad were very supportive in anything I would want to do I'd come in and say I mean I've had enough as, as a rebellious slightly post-punk <laughs> teenager I often disagreed with politicians and there was a lot of political debate in our house particularly between me and my dad my father was from Belfast and, and grew up in the troubles was very Oof. aware of them but came over here and actually served in the British Army. So oh, rather wow. controversial. Yeah, <laughs> and, and married, I was going to say, we're off to a yeah, yeah, flyer. <laughs> and and mar- married an English woman. So he was very aware of politics, but what he was also very good at is understanding the importance of other people's point of view. He'd obviously lived mm. through various aspects of segregation. He was a Catholic, his background was Catholic. So he was very up for debate being an Irishman, but also very aware that just because someone had a different opinion of you didn't mean that they were intrinsically evil. But Mm. yeah, very early, normal upbringing, mum, dad, brother, working class background, no real blips, just really, really ordinary. And then um, decided to go to university to do my undergrad degree. I'd started out training as a a chef and realised that you don't actually get to see the light of day being a chef or or anything (laughs) most things yeah (laughs) you just uh, sleep and cook and usually have a few beers so decided I was going to go back to college and do a diploma in business and finance and just found myself sucking up all this knowledge like a sponge and, and being really absorbed by it I had a really good personal tutor who I'm still in contact with today and I know I'm talking sort of early 90s here and he pulled me into his office one day and said, are you going to go, to, you're applying to university. This was the day where you applied by hand to UCAS. And then you went off and did your interviews. And then they paid you to go to university. <laughs> <laughs> what a dream, then, eh? What was it? Maybe it, maybe it was yeah, a dream well, in some I mean, it far was, off It land. was spectacular. Yeah. You got in on merit and you were given a grant depending on your parents' income. It was all very fair, to be fair. Mm. So um, I said, no, I'm not going to go to university. And, and he literally said, don't be so bloody stupid. Get to university. So I went off to uni and went to UMIST, that's now part of the University of Manchester or Manchester Uni, and did management science, which was all about business. But there was elements in there that were very much sociology and psychology based. And those were the elements that really, really appealed to me. But being young and naive, I left university and I was already working for Guinness at the time as a a student ambassador. They'd come and started a project within four universities, Manchester being one. And I was working for them and I graduated and then started my career with them. Did what you do. Do you do you go through your graduate training and you you get promoted and you work your way through? And life was good. I got paid a stupid amount of money mm. for working with booze and great team to work with. It was every graduate's 
dream come true, <laughs> hanging out in London and having an expense account. And actually, you worked really hard, but you also got to play very hard as well. You were very well looked mm. after. You were in quite a dominated, male-dominated, I should say, industry as a professional, mm. Debs. Can you tell me about your experience here and and given your upbringing could you fit in and adapt very quickly was sexism ever a problem and and did you get used to the I guess traditional hazing which men do to each other when women aren't normally around well um there's there's a couple of things to unpick there the hazing happens whether you're male or female it's um it's a team bonding (laughs) thing actually because as soon as, excuse my language, as soon as they start taking the piss out of you, you're, you're part of the group. Oh, part yes. Of, yeah, yeah. I stand corrected. I, like I said, although I grew up in a family with traditional gender roles, there was no doubt that the entirety of both my father's and my mother's bloodline were very much matriarchies. Although the men went out and did the, the slog, as it were, went out and, and earned the money, it was very much managed. Women, can, women run everything yeah, it was, else. It was yeah, very yeah. much managed yeah. by the women. So there was, never, there was never any question that it was going to be an issue. And if I'm brutally honest, I think I was given a far more leeway and far more respect than men entering that oh. trade at the time for a couple of reasons. Mm. One, I think chivalry of the men involved in this tradition traditional industry (laughs) was very much we have to behave there's a woman in the room I remember a couple of them standing Mm. up when I actually entered the room which which was phenomenal considering that my brother used to just (laughs) laugh at me and sneer a bit sort of like a benevolent sexism it's not sexism in in any way I think if you choose to frame it as sexism then it is I chose to see it as respect right okay the motivation behind it wasn't sexism it was absolutely born out of respect and the way they were brought up the idea of benevolent sexism is in that aspect I don't really agree with I think there's a, a, a notion that sexism might exist where you're, the expectations are lower, but that really, really was not the case. It was just that, that there was a protective element. My sure. first role in the organisation was up in Scotland where I was the only woman on the team, and that's the sales team and the technical team. And there was a level of protection over me. They, they felt responsible mm. for me, especially because you'd end up, part of your training was walking into bars and selling across the bars and you could end up in a really gorgeously up and coming affluent area as much as you could end up in a rough criminal area so mm. yeah there was there was a bit of that but no I think I fitted in straight away to be fair and again that's because there's a lot of men in my family and there's a lot of debate around and it's elbows on the table you know you try and get in to get your point across <laughs> So I think it was as much my attitude and confidence, I suppose, as it was there. There was Mm. no reticence from them in any way. They were completely welcoming. I've never, never really had an issue. Well, that's good. I want to move on to the reason why I kind of asked you on the pod, Debs, which is your academic work, but also your personal experience of domestic abuse. So you were domestically abused by your ex-husband and you said that a lot of his behaviour that he did at the time outside of the violence was abuse as well so can you tell me how it started if you could and then how it affected your mental Mm. health the people around you and what that journey was like from there basically yeah well like I said I'd been I'd been I was educated financially independent for the job I was doing I was earning stupid money and stupid bonuses and you know living living (laughs) a fantastic life lots of friends that kind of stuff and then I'd been out of a long-term relationship for a while and then met my ex-husband 
where at the time it felt like I'd met my soulmate. In this particular type of abuse, it's a story that I hear often. It was like they just knew me. It was like, you know, two peas in a pod and they got me, they understood me and stuff. And it felt very much like that. At the time, he was allegedly living at home looking after his mother was the story that he spun me. And again, he'd, he, he spun a career that he was a, a property owner and he'd just stepped out from managing this pub and he decided to take an, uh, a caring role in the community. So kind of ticking all the indicators that he'd kind of been successful and decided to walk away from it to take a more socially based role and all that kind of stuff. So it, it kind of grounded and, and I wasn't naive in any way, shape or form. I was in, in my early 30s, but he was a fantastic salesman, to be fair, and pulled me in. I, <laughs> I later found out that nothing that he told me was true. He was living at his home wow. because with his mum because he was broke. He was broke because he'd never really held down a career because I think his father once said to me, he always wants to be the managing director and never the tea boy. So there was a lot of lies, to be fair. The abuse, there was a lot of... Subtle red flags, I suppose, in the first year okay. um, I was with him. But mainly I kind of put that down to he's a bit insecure, he's a bit, a little bit possessive and a little bit jealous and things like that that you think of sometimes in a, a new relationship. And then I got pregnant and we decided to get married and he had had a huge falling out with my parents. We'd gone to stay with them for a couple of days whilst we were moving house. We bought a new house and we'd sold one and we needed to get out before we moved into the other one. So we went to stay with my parents for a few days. And unbeknownst to me, there was a friction going on. And then there was this almighty argument between my mother and my ex which resulted in us leaving the house and, and my dad just saying, please stay in touch and, and, and all the rest of it. And that was around a Christmas, just after my son had been born. I think he was three, three months old. And then three months after that, in the, in the March, I was due to go back to work following maternity leave. And there was a bit of friction, a bit of atmosphere building and building. And then my mum died without me talking to her again after that event, which always makes me um, mm. emotional. And then literally when I was at my most vulnerable, so I'd got a six-month-old baby due to go back to work and my mother had just died. That's when the abuse really kicked in. And it went from naught to 3,000 in a day. It changed mm. literally overnight. It was just really bizarre, and it's still it's still really difficult to explain now how it was like Jekyll and Hyde. It really was. When you're in that position where you've lost someone very close to you and you've got a newborn child, and I wasn't living near my dad and, and due to go back to work and all that kind of stuff, you are very vulnerable. And I think that's when the, mm. the particular abuser that my ex is strikes because if they can keep you low at that point, then they will. And mm. then following that was another five years of persistent and consistent abuse. The violence mm. when it happened was extreme. 
there's been incidences where if you meet me I'm really little I'm about five foot one and at the time with all the stress and stuff my weight was around seven seven and a half stone and he was fairly hefty and there was one incident of violence where he literally picked me up and, and threw me against the wall and it was beyond shocking because all of a sudden you go from being a very confident very capable human being to suddenly feeling nothing you are nothing you have no control or power but uh, there was another incident where ruby was my son was a, i think he was four so ruby would be coming up to one or maybe one and uh, he'd been bickering at me all day and we came in i made coffee and i used to just kind of go really quiet while it happened kind of just close in on myself and he was screaming at me here and I put a cup of coffee down and I I can't remember what I said but I'd I'd literally snapped back like got to the end and just snapped back and and unfortunately the children were behind a safety gate and he just threw the entire cup of coffee all over me I remember screaming and just trying to rip all my clothes off as quick as I could and then going out into the hall and as I went out into the hall where the stairs, we, we had a house that had yeah. three stories. Yeah. He just came up behind me and started to choke me. And I remember thinking for the first time, I can't actually breathe. This is it. And it was that calm. There was not any, at the moment that thought happened, I was really calm. But I managed to get my foot up to my chest and in, in, in between me and him and, and kick him off and then run off and, and get away from him. I think I locked myself and the children in the bathroom at that point. But as extreme as that sounds, that was rare. I was aware of the behaviour, but what I wasn't aware of as a a construct at the time was the coercive control that happened. And truthfully, I wasn't aware of it until halfway through my academic study on domestic abuse, well, intimate partner violence and coercive control, where I actually created a a scale from a scale my supervisor had created years ago and was adding elements to it and was literally able to go down 45 items ticking it and thinking crikey yeah I I really was a victim of coercive control on every single level but at the time Mm. I remember describing it to friends of saying every day he has a script and every day goes through the same script he'll tell me I'm a shit mum, I'm shit at my job, I'm a shit wife, I'm bad at this, I'm crap at that. It would literally be at least a daily occurrence that that happens. And then there was times when I was thrown out of the car with no money or coat and he would just drive off with the kids and I have no phone. There was times when I was locked out of the house. There was times when I was locked in the house with the kids while he went out and he didn't want me to, to leave. So he locked me in the house, took all the keys. We had a new house. And he could lock it, deadlock it from the outside. And then he took all the keys out the window. So I couldn't get out of those either. And I was so isolated. I had no friends or family around there. So it wasn't as even as if I could call someone and say, can you come and get me out of the house? <laughs> Literally every single element of coercive control I was subjected to. Mm. And that's actually part of the reason when victims are asked, why didn't you leave? There's a couple of, well, there's many reasons, but there's a couple of really (laughs) important reasons that I'd like people to be very aware of. One is that you don't ultimately recognise all these elements as abuse because 
they are exaggerated and maladaptive forms of normal behavior. So if you fall out with a partner and you call them a dickhead or something, that might be part of your normal relationship. But persistent and consistent putting someone down is soul-destroying. It's not just wearing, it's abusive. He would often leave the house with only food in for the children. So I would feed the children and not be able to eat myself. At one point, Jesus Christ! I remember getting on the scales and I was just over six and a quarter stone. So I was losing weight. Lack of sleep. He would wake me up in the middle of the night and have an argument with me. Just things that I would put down to... Oh, he's had a very stressful life, or maybe if I just did things a bit better, or, you know, various questions. So for people like the police, for example, trying to evidence this, it's almost impossible because even the victims don't recognise these elements are happening until they go away Mm. and talk to someone else about it and someone actually points out, oh, you know, there's all these other elements. It's one of those things. But the main reason people don't leave, apart from the fact that they feel... They start to believe everything that the abuser has told them about how shit they are and how unlovable they are and how nobody likes them and how they've got no friends, even though they've been cut off purposely, is that your whole cognitive process each day is utterly monopolized by getting through the day, either walking on eggshells or trying to keep them happy or trying to do things better or trying to do that. So you've got absolutely no headspace and no energy to even formulate a plan to get out. You are utterly absorbed by the situation. So when I look back on it, I almost see it. I'm so separated from it now that I almost see it as a film. I can almost watch it outside of me. Any victim that has been through it or is going through it now, good on you for being able to get up and get yourself sorted and whatever. Good on you for surviving the day, let alone Mm. even thinking about getting out. So yeah, that was that was my first marriage. Yeah, no, <laughs> no worries. The abuse got to a point where, unbeknownst to you and your children, you and him, I guess, or him mainly, were put on a risk watch list by the police, and they came and removed him from your property. Mm. What was that moment like? Was there any short-term relief? And can you just tell me about the court case that then transpired and proceeded afterwards? Yeah, so we'd been married for almost five years, I think, at this point. And he'd stopped me working. He didn't want me to work, which for anyone that knew me prior to this was just bonkers because I've always worked and I always work now. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) my children probably know as much about psychological theory as most graduates. Um, It's something that is part of who I am. I enjoy working. But he wouldn't work. So we were in financial dire straits. And I'd never been in financial dire straits. I'd never been in this situation where I went to the supermarket to buy something and my card got rejected. But it was happening more and more often. So he concluded that I should apply for a job. (laughs) And he was going to stay at home, allegedly. We went through a number of jobs and there was one that was up in... We were living in North Nottinghamshire at the time. And there was one in the Lake District that I really liked the look of. And it really fitted with what he wanted to project. And he wanted to project this sort of landed gentry walking in the, you know, just, it was all very, very this level. It wasn't, he wasn't happy just to have normality. He wanted that. Although he'd never worked or got any qualifications to gain it himself. (laughs) Um, So I applied for the job and got the job. 
And we moved here in the September. And the whole thing was framed by him and his mother, who was very aware of the abuse that was going on. It was all framed as a new start, a fresh start. And, you know, it'll all be it'll all be fine and dandy and stuff. We literally moved to one of the most beautiful places in the country, but it is very isolated. And I got a fantastic job with an organisation that I really enjoyed and the shit hit the fan, quite frankly. I was really busy with work. Everything, everything was down to me. Getting up in the morning, getting the kids ready, getting uh, my youngest off to nursery, getting my eldest off to primary school, getting me to the office, working all day, doing that in reverse, coming back. The house was trashed because he would often be either cooking something and use everything in the house or whatever. And it was always, we always had to sit down and absolutely enjoy the thing that he cooked all day for us and eat in silence and then tell him how great it was. And then I'd have to, because he cooked, I'd have to do all the washing up. But I'd also have to bath the children, clean the children, get the lunches ready, take the dogs out that he wanted, do everything else. It was literally waiting on him hand and foot. It was a nightmare. But strangely enough, because of his absolute lack of doing anything, the house that we got was uh, rented from the National Trust. It was rented. They only needed one name on the tenancy, and I put my name on it. I'd registered with the nursery because he couldn't be asked. I'd registered everything with the school because he couldn't be asked. So everything was actually registered in my name. And within three months, his behaviour just escalated and escalated and escalated and escalated. Far more extreme even than before we'd moved. And I think it was, well, I, I would put it down to now that he could see me having to go out to work. So I was seeing people, I was meeting people, I was having even just those few hours outside of his control, I was having more things. And he was obviously getting more and more agitated. I would come in, he started going out, and you have to drive everywhere here. He would go out and get absolutely Mm. plastered, come back at stupid o'clock in the morning, wake me up, have massive arguments till five, six o'clock in the morning. Then I'd have to wake the kids up get them ready, do that routine of taking one to nursery, one to school, then that, then come back and do the whole nightmare over and over again. And it was just insane. And I remember thinking, right, something's going to go. Him Mm. or me, something's going to happen. I can just feel it bubbling. And again, unconsciously, I'd got a job, I'd got this, I'd got that. So I was feeling a bit more confident about things, a bit more stable, a bit more... You were holding things together. There's there's people I can talk to now. (laughs) And then the place I was working shut down for two weeks over Christmas. And most people would be thinking, fantastic, I'm in this house, the first Christmas in this house, got two little kids, it's going to be magical, it's going to be this, that and the other. I felt physically sick of having to spend two weeks in a house with this abuser. And I thought, I just, I don't know if I'm going to do it. Anyway, as you can imagine, the first week, which overlapped Christmas Day, was horrendous. And then New Year's Eve, which was 2011, going into 2012. So New Year's Eve 2011. All day, he'd been horrible, like really horrible to me. And then at night, 
he was getting all touchy-feely, like, you know, obviously wanted to get intimate. And the idea of it made me want to vomit. And it was the first time I'd actually thought to myself, you think I'm going to go near you after you've treated me like this all day? So he called me all the names under the sun and then went to bed about eight o'clock. And I just remember sitting on the sofa and thinking, this is going to be the best New Year's Eve for a long time. I was literally sat on my own, having dealt with that, no one around me, nothing to do, just sit there and have a bit of peace. Next day, because I was phoning my dad at this time, because it was he, he wouldn't... He wouldn't let me go out when all this was happening over Christmas. He wouldn't let me go out and take the kids with me. He would always make sure I left a child with him because he obviously thought she's just going to leg it with, yeah. with the kids. And again, to be honest, it wasn't something that I was thinking about until he kind of put it in my mind. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, okay, maybe I could go. Maybe I could do something about this. And then the New Year's Day 2012 which will always be one of the best and worst days of my life. I was up with the kids early in the morning. He used to just sleep in till whenever. And I went upstairs to get something and he was on the laptop talking to his father on his mobile. And his, his father's as toxic as he was. And his father's going, oh, well, you're just in a toxic relationship, blah, blah, blah. It, it was as if they couldn't see anything that was happening. And he was saying to me, have you changed the code to the bank account? And I was like, no, no. And he said, because I'm moving all the money out, I'll give you an allowance. And I thought to myself, what? So now I'm not going to have, I'm working full time and now I'm not going to, and I just, something just snapped in me and I thought, I'm going to have to phone my dad. I'm going to have to tell my dad everything that's going on. My mum had died at, at this time. I told you, sort of kicked off all the abuse. And I got the kids downstairs by the door and I was putting the shoes on thinking, I'll go for a walk, let him calm down. And then when I come back, I'll phone my dad and something, something's going to happen because I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I just, I can't do it. So Zach was five and Ruby was two. And as soon as he, my ex, started to shout, Zach would go like me, would go really, really quiet. And Ruby would just stand there kind of like boggled being a two-year-old. And he shoved me out of the way and started doing up Ruby's little boots. And I remember him turning around and saying to me, you need to be careful because I'll walk out with these children and never come back. And th that was the first time that Ruby actually put her arms up to me and started crying. And it, it was literally like someone had just flipped a switch in me. I was looking at my kids thinking, this has got to end. This is, this is it. As I was phoning my dad, he'd, he'd hit me across the face and grabbed the phone at the same time because I'd, I'd got, I think, I can't remember which side it was, but I got the phone up, up to my face. <laughs> yeah. And he'd got the phone in his hand. And I remember walking over to him and he was bent down doing Ruby's shoelaces. And he'd got the phone under his armpit. And as, it, as I went over, he, he took it out and he said, you after this. And I remember grabbing the phone. And I don't know how it happened, but with all my strength, I just pulled it out and I was really calm. I wasn't shouting. I wasn't. I just pulled the phone out of his hand, got Ruby, got Zach, went upstairs to the bedroom, and we had we've got keys in all the bedroom. Locked the bedroom door and phoned the police. And I phoned a helpline. You know, like you you can phone a desk for a, a police desk yeah. for for advice. And I phoned up, and I, I was relatively calm. My voice was peculiar calm if that makes sense <laughs> and told them what was going on said I haven't been hit or anything right now but I am terrified he's threatening to leave the house with the kids 
Um, he threatened me previously with him committing suicide. So I had all that going on in my head thinking, is he going to leave with the kids? Is he going to harm himself and the kids? You know, I had everything just going off at, at once. I phoned the police and just said, I'm looking for some advice. And they went, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll get someone to phone you or something. And I put the phone down. He's hammering at the door and stuff. And I'm just sat in the, the bedroom playing sort of like, oh, so we play a little game with the kids trying to sort of distract at the everything that's going around. Now, when I say I live in the middle of nowhere, I really mean I live in the middle of nowhere. If the weather's bad and you have a heart attack, chances are you're going to die. <laughs> it's the middle of nowhere. There's one road in and one road out. And this is New Year's Day, okay, that I've, I've made this call. Within 10 minutes, there was a knock at the front door. And I remember looking out in my bedroom window and seeing a police car and thinking, how has that happened? How is that? <laughs> Literally, how has that happened? So I went downstairs, opened the door, and it was a woman. I think her name's Kate. And I just remember looking at her and opening the door and thinking, he must have phoned them. Because he'd, he'd phoned once or twice before saying I was being abusive when he was being abusive and all sorts of stuff. I opened the door and didn't know who Kate was. And she just went, hi, Deborah. And I thought, what? <laughs> it was so surreal. <laughs> so to cut that scenario very short, she came in. And as she came in, my ex came down the stairs shouting, you can't tell her anything. You've got to keep it all co like confidential or whatever. And I remember just standing there looking at him and looking at Kate thinking, what is going on? How does she know who I am? How is this happening? <laughs> and then within 10 minutes, a policeman, an, a, an officer, a male officer had arrived. And again, the same thing happened with my ex, started squaring up to him. I think his name was Mark. And I was in the, the kitchen with Kate and she was asking me all these questions. And I was still kind of like, the kids were upstairs watching a DVD and, and all that kind of stuff. But it transpires, Mark and Kate swapped. And that was because Kate said, he's trying to kick off with Mark and I'm going to go there to try and ease that tension a bit. And I just said, why is he kicking off with Mark? And she said, oh, he knows Mark. Mark arrested him. And I was like, <laughs> so anyway, it transpires. Mark said to me, we've been keeping an eye on you. And I'm thinking, what? Apparently, my ex had been arrested for being drunk and disorderly on the floor of the public toilets in the town near to us. He'd been arrested for drink driving and he was three times over the legal limit. And unbeknownst to me, he'd been banned from driving for two years. And he hadn't told me. He'd just gone away and gone to court and been banned and then carried on driving with us in the car as if nothing had happened. He'd been put on something called Pub Watch where he was banned from all the pubs in the town and locality to where we are. Oh, and also we'd gone to a nativity play that my daughter was in at her nursery and he'd started shouting at me uh, and he was clearly drunk at the time as well. And again, unbeknownst to me, the nursery staff had logged this as a safeguarding issue. And all those things coming together had put me and the kids on an at-risk list. So when I picked the phone up to ask for advice and my number and name had shown up on whatever shows it up as, that had triggered a police response. Now, they said to me, Mark actually said to me, I've seen this hundreds, if not thousands of times. Nothing's going to get better. 
how long's this been going on? And I just splurged everything that had been going on for almost five years. And he asked me a question. He said, do you want us to remove him forever? And I said, yeah, please. So they did. So that was the 1st of January, 2012. On the 4th of January, I phoned a solicitor and started proceedings. And by, I think it was September the 10th, I think, I was officially divorced. But I was dragged through court for the next six years by him for various different reasons, to the point where for the first two and a half years, I paid for a solicitor and and was represented. But then I ran out of money. And he'd actually got legal aid because he wasn't working just before the cutoff of legal aid. So him and his solicitor, who was clearly happy to get as much legal aid as he could possibly get his hands on, trotted me in and out of court sometimes twice a month, usually around my birthday or the kid's birthday or Christmas or Valentine's Day or whatever. And then the the following three and a bit years, I was a litigant in person and represented myself. I mean, that is a pretty big achievement in itself. And having a a dad who's been in law, I know what that sort of process is like, to be honest. Because that court process was so long as well, Debs, you even managed to meet someone new and remarry during the the, the period of the court case. Yeah, and strangely enough, his barrister actually said to me when she met John and and I told the court I was getting remarried, you know, there was a big gap (laughs) between getting divorced and meeting John and getting married. His barrister herself said to me, I can't believe you're even getting married with what you've been through. <laughs> His own barrister. That, you know, it was just, and, and I thought, yeah, yeah, but you'll still trot along here and take the money. <laughs> it's, it's phenomenal. But yeah, and, and it was actually down to the fact, when I hear a lot of this stuff about women saying that the, you know, the, the court is misogynistic and stuff. No, <laughs> I would say there are some antiquated views maybe in the court but if I talk from my personal experience I can also tell you other other people that have have had good or bad experiences or well not that anything's a good but a a less bad experience yeah yeah Yeah. less crap yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) I suppose one of the key issues is that a lot of things now certainly to do with families are done through court if you can't make an agreement you go through court so there's this huge glut of misery going through the courts and there's a huge industry built on the back of that if you suddenly remove the need for that issue you can imagine how many people would suddenly become redundant (laughs) And, and a lot of mortgages would go down the pan and so on and so forth but the issue for me is that you don't get assigned a particular judge so you might see one judge one month and a different judge the next month. Then that different judge has now got to read all your notes from the previous one to get up to speed. To maybe have a half hour, one hour hearing of you that you feel is life-changing decisions, but to them is a job. And then they've got however many other people doing the same shit mm. all the way through their day and week and so on. But these are judges that have a circuit. So they'll go to different courts daily, weekly, whatever, they'll move around. So whichever date you get assigned and the the people that assign the dates are not the judges, they are administrators. So they'll go, oh, well, we've got a gap on this date. So we'll put that and who's the judge on that date. And it's, it's going to be a different one. Now, I've been to court so many times that I managed to get the same judge quite often. <laughs> And she dismissed a case that I'd been brought to court for against from him. 
And then all of a sudden she came in on the back of this one and I'd done a master's at this point and I was doing my PhD. Now, solicitors are bound by certain things that they can say in a courtroom by a certain framework of certain behaviour. As a litigant in person, you're not subject to those particular boundaries. So I actually said, the court has been used to continue the abuse I sustained in my marriage. Because it was. I was being taken to court for finances and children. A part of the financial issue was that whilst I was with him, I'd bought two houses. And part of the agreement in our financial settlement was because he wasn't working and he wasn't paying any maintenance or anything that, I was to sell those houses on his insistence and I would get the profits from them. But when I put them up for sale, he wouldn't sign the paperwork. (laughs) And it was just (laughs) to keep the whole process going. It was no financial cost to him. His solicitor was clearly happy to go to court as many times as whatever, but it was immensely stressful on me. And actually, it got to the point where he wasn't even allowed to see the children because of the amount of trauma he was visiting on them. So he would still take me to court for the children, even though he didn't didn't see the children. And it wasn't even for additional access. It was a bizarre thing. So I said that to... It was just vindictive. Yeah, so I just... It was vexatious. So I said this to the judge... And this was for something that he'd owed money on in our marriage, yet he was trying to take me to court for me to pay it. And she dismissed it. Before she dismissed it, she said, I'm actually a bit fed up of seeing you all the time. I'm going to go back and go through all the files. And this was back end of 2017, early 2018. So remember, he'd been removed from our house on the 1st of January 2012, and I'd started proceedings the 4th of January. So here we are, six years later, still trying to get this done, okay? And then she went through all of the files and then actually did a timeline of everything that he'd ever done and then literally said, I'm going to hand this down next week. You've got a choice of whether you rock up to to court or not. And I remember that the morning it happened, It dropped in my email and I was sat there looking at it thinking, what is it? My heart was literally in in my mouth thinking, what is this going to say? And I went through the entire thing in a mad panic. And I remember it saying, I find the wife is truthful and the husband is vexatious. And I remember just thinking, you fucking beauty. (laughs) (laughs) It just, for the first time ever, it felt like someone actually saw it. They'd actually seen what was happening. And she literally said, I'm dismissing this case. The debt is the husband's. And that's the way they speak, the wife and the husband. Nothing to take personally, as much as you don't want to be the wife of that thing that you've divorced Mm. or whatever, or the husband of that thing. And she literally said, if he wants to bring you back to court, he has to apply to the court in order to apply to the court. So essentially, bog off, you're not coming back. And I remember, I'm not joking, I was fist pumping, I was doing a little dance. My husband's looking at me like I'd gone insane and I went, she said it, she said it. And I'm pointing at a phone, he's got no idea what I'm talking about. But it was literally the first time I thought to myself, I am actually divorced. 
I'm actually got nothing to do with that guy. And he's tried various things since. He's never sent anything to the children for the birthdays or Christmas. He's never set anything up for them. His excuse was that... I'm shocked, Jess. I'm shocked, shocked, in inverted commas. People can't see my facial expressions when I say that. (laughs) But his excuse was that he said I would destroy it. All right? Not something I would do, but that was his excuse. So I suggested, why don't you set up a bank account then that has nothing to do with me and you you can do whatever in there? Not a whisper. A couple of years ago... Where are we? Yes, two years ago for Christmas, about this time two years ago, the kids got their first mobile phones, okay, which was a nightmare because they just looked at it and that was it, disappeared (laughs) into TikTok or wherever they go. But when I gave them their phones, on their phones, and considering the court said he's not allowed any direct contact with the children, any contact with the children has to come from them. And he had accused me of all sorts of things. Um, when I handed them their phones, I put on my number, their stepdad's number and their dad's number and said, it's up to you. He's on there. That's his number. If you want to contact him, you can. Zach, who was five when um, his dad got removed from the, from the house, wants nothing to do with him. My Fair daughter enough. at the time wanted, she was curious. She has yeah. no real yeah, recollection. Sure. Yeah. So she started to message him. Now, I was okay with that because she was under 13 and on Apple, if you register their age as under 13, it's linked to an adult's phone and I'm the account holder, so it was linked to my phone. So although I didn't purposely read it, I I did. I'd check it and just think, is she all right? And she'd send him a message and he'd send one back and it was like, oh, I'm so happy. It started out with her saying, I've got a new phone, mum's given me your number. I thought I'd say hi. He wrote back saying, oh, I'm so happy to hear from you. That's great, Ruby, and this, that, and the other. And it started out lovely. And I thought, if that's what she wants, I'm here if it all falls apart. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But I also want to be able to look my children in the eye and say, I always allowed you the opportunity to have that relationship with your dad. Because at the end of the day, it's not about me. I'm away from that. It wasn't their choice to have him as a dad. It was my choice. And it's not for me to take their bloodline away from them. If they want to make that decision, that's fine. But actually, it got worse and worse and worse to the point where, and I, and I still have screenshots of the messages where this is like an 11, 12-year-old girl where he's writing her essays about how awful I am and what I've done. Jesus Christ. And I'm sat there thinking, oh, you know, not just as as a mom, as a psychologist thinking, shit, what is this going to be doing to this, this little girl's head? Mm. Now, I've always had a real baseline of being age-appropriate, honest with my children. If they ask me a question about the situation, I'll tell them. When they were little, why did you split up? Well, we didn't really get on very well. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of shouting and stuff like that. We've never really had a conversation about the level and breadth of abuse I don't think they need to. If they ask me a question when they're older, I'll have an adult conversation with them. Currently, they don't need all that detail. It wouldn't make their life any better. So why would they need to know? Mm -hmm. That's my view. So I was terrified that this was really going to start messing up my little girl. Until I saw her response. (laughs) (laughs) I'm presuming this is going to be a good one in your opinion. Her response was so mature 
it was much better than I could have responded because I think I would have responded emotionally to him because of yeah. the triggers within me. She wrote back saying, I don't want to hear this. I just wanted to make contact with you. I know my mum and I know the story. And I thought, whoa. And anything you say to me, I'm going to ignore. I'm happy to talk to you. But if you talk about my mum like that, we will not be talking anymore. And I literally on, just girl. did that. You beauty. <laughs> and I literally <laughs> just went into her and I went, you okay? And she went, yeah, I'm fine. And I went, I saw the message and she went, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And I thought, I don't need to unpick this. And actually, if I unpick it, I'm, I'm, I might be making it worse. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. next time the conversation happened again, it was all very sort of like, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? All very polite and stuff. And then he started again. And she just said, that's it, I'm blocking you. And she blocked him. And, that's and that, that was that. I mean, this wasn't just two conversations. This was over a number yeah. of months when yeah. it was that. But she warned him. And I just thought to myself, one of the things I was really worried about from their experience as being victims of domestic abuse, yes, it might not have been directly at them, but living in a house where there's that level of tension and that level of harm. Yeah. They were in the crossfire. They're victims. Yeah. They're as much victims as, as I am. In fact, they're probably more victims because they can't walk out the door. They, they're, they're trapped in mm. One of the things I was concerned about was that they wouldn't be able to set boundaries. They wouldn't know where those boundaries were, where what was normal and what was abusive and all the rest of it. And when she did that, it just made me think, actually... My work here is done. She knows boundaries, as does does my son. My son said, don't want to talk to him. Okay, that's up to you. The number's in your phone. If you want it, it's entirely your decision. But for me, being able to know that they have the capability to set boundaries, although maybe a bit too grown up for what, what you'd <laughs> expect, I would rather them have that than what, yeah. what could have happened. You were diagnosed with PTSD after the abuse, Debs. And at this point, you very easily could have understandably, you know, taken the gender-based violence theory and applied it to your own life. But you said to me off air, not once did I think this would happen to me because I was a woman. And you believed, or you, or you say, it happened to you because he was a narcissist and he had a narcissistic personality disorder and was warped and, and whatever else. I could go on and on and on yeah, about yeah. this. But how did you come to that mindset? Was it easy? Was it difficult? It just never figured. Gender has never been the first thing I identify as. And I've had this conversation with many friends, male and female, especially because of the research that I do, that gender is not at the forefront of my every waking moment. I judge people on their actions and their personality. It's, it's not something where I think, I've got friends, male and female. I've got gay friends, straight friends, pansexual friends, you name it. They're friends. They have similarities and difference, just like every other person that I know. So it wasn't, mm. it wasn't something that struck me as being, I've been abused because I'm a woman. And it's as much as, Whilst I was being abused, I felt horrendously bad. It wasn't something that I thought I have behaved in a way that means I should be abused or I am worthless so much that I should be abused. I always knew he was the abuser. I didn't know why. I had an inkling. I couldn't conceptualise it in the way I can now that I know all the right words and stuff. But I knew it was him. And I don't think for one second he abused me because I'm a woman. I imagine 
if he was gay, he would do it to his male partner. I think he's innately an abusive person for for a number of reasons. But the fact that I'm a woman was purely down because he and I are heterosexual and we yeah. we got together. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of things are simple, but few are simplistic. And having gender as the basis for why domestic abuse happens is innately flawed. I can't even find a word to tell you how wrong it is. (laughs) And on every level, for every person, a member of that group and the extended group, family group and friends group, that it affects on the way out. Yet it's something that is... Oh, sorry. Woven in. My, my dog's just made that the jump. <laughs> that, scared, that scared me a little bit as well. <laughs> Funny thing is, is. It's great timing, by the way. That was great comedic Funny timing. Thing is, is I just opened my mouth and she barked. It sounded like it was coming from me. <laughs> but, uh, well, I've been called worse. So it's a, a simplistic reasoning that's based in ideology that is absolutely woven into the fabric of how we see this within our society whether it's the organisations that provide care, the laws, or certainly maybe not the way the actual law is written, but absolutely the way the guidance framework is is written, which is essentially for, for those that don't know, is the way that law is enacted, is the framework. So you can write a law completely gender neutral, and then you can go away and be as sad as I am and go and read the guidance framework and realise that it's immensely gendered hugely like really badly gendered and that's the way it will be enacted and that will be trained into the judiciary into the police into the service providers so on and so forth and it's I would argue based on evidence that not only is it innately in and of itself flawed it's harmful we're going to talk about that in a little bit more depth in your academic journey, Debs. But moving on from abuse, if we can, you were also tragically beset by two massive periods of grief mm. in the last 10 years. And you've mentioned one already, which was your dad. Six weeks after you remarried, it was when it happened. You said it blew you mm. away. Can you tell me about that grief and also about the man your dad was and some of your favourite memories of him? Because you said to me you were a big daddy's totally, girl off there, yeah. weren't you? I will cry yeah. at this point, by the way. Um, Take your time. I I think when when you've lost someone that you love so dearly, when you cry, it's not really out of sadness. It's because you love them so much. And without any doubt whatsoever, my dad made me the woman I am today. And he was this he was the same with my brother. He loved us unconditionally and believed us. Believed we were capable of anything and everything. But was always there if we fell. And same for my mum. And my brother was a real <laughs> mummy's boy. And I was a real daddy's girl. You know, it was it was very gendered and traditional in, in, its, in, its, <laughs> in its way. But I, when it happened, it happened out of the blue. I was married to John, who has a very, very kind personality, very, very much like my dad. And he and my dad got on immensely well. 
And I've got some fantastic photographs of them on our wedding day that really, really make me smile. A little bit sad because I wish John had been able to spend a bit more time with him, but I'm just glad he he spent the time with him that he did. He was uh, funny, (laughs) proper dad joke funny. (laughs) He was very patient. He had a little saying for everything. And I I find that the, the older I get... I find myself doing it as well, having little sayings for things, very much of the, you know, a stitch in time saves nine and where do trees go to hide and all that kind of stuff. But he took no shit. <laughs> That's where you yeah, get it from. strange, isn't it? My mother also, she, she was very like that. She came from a, a very abusive background, but was all about a family. But again, took no shit off anyone. It's, it's quite strange that <laughs> I would be similar. <laughs> but they both differed in the way they would do that. My dad would be very calm about the way he would react to people that were bothering him, however he saw that. My mum would just go up like, uh, my dad would say she's gone up like a bottle of pop. She would just rage, rage <laughs> at him. But he was a, a brilliant dad. I've got even memories of him <laughs> when I was really young, him teaching me to play poker and how to bet. And, you know, how to, like, um, raise and stuff like that. So by the time I was eight, I was an immense poker player. <laughs> 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 you know, it was absolutely brilliant. But this is a man that had, you know, been brought up in the Troubles in Belfast and had to deal with being a, being a Catholic in there. And then had joined the British Army and done seven tours of Cyprus while they were having their civil wars going on. And as much as he was very jokey and very funny and, and teaching his six-year-old daughter how to play poker and stuff and blackjack and all that, so we've spent hours just sat there playing cards and stuff. It was something I absolutely adored. As I grew older, he also told me the, some of the atrocities he saw in these places. And mm. he was in what was called the Transport Corps, which is now, I think, called Logistics. If it's the same sim- or similar strategy, when uh, he was under the UN at the point they were out in Cyprus, still with the British Army. And they would send the transport corps out first because they had all the lorries and they could set things up and deliver stuff about and, and all that kind of stuff. And he would tell me stories about, like, he, would, he would get this huge amount of food when they was off delivering stuff all over the place and he'd pull over to eat. I remember stories of him opening, saying he opened up his mess tin and he looked out the lorry and saw these kids just looking at him, and they were obviously native children of the place that were being starved out by the other side or whatever. And then he said, all of a sudden you have no appetite, and you just give that to the children, and you go and you find something else in there, and you give that to kids and and stuff like that. And so, and and he would say it was heartbreaking. And then he would also say, then you know, he would switch to, oh, and when we were doing gas mask training, I was having a cigarette out the side. And I realised that, you know, they sent you in this building and you had to take your mask off and say your rank and number whilst all this tear gas or whatever was going off. Put your mask back on and run out the door. And as he was having a cigarette, he saw the door they run out of. So he thought, oh, you know, I could just like put my mask on and run in with them and then, you know, come out the back end or whatever. (laughs) And he totally dodged the whole thing. So in the in the one hand he was like dodging all the the stuff he could do and whatever, which I found really almost like a I suppose you could describe it as a bit of a a rogue type thing. But then in mm-hmm. in the in the same respect he was out there serving 
a nation that was being starved out and he was trying to get rations to them as a transport driver and stuff like that. So the seriousness of my father and the immense warmth and joking of him were very much two sides of the same coin. As well as your dad, a week before you started your PhD, your brother tragically took his own life as well, which also shook you. It shook your family to its core. And because of your psychological background, because of your academic background, you said you could understand his mindset or, or at least try and understand what led him to make that decision. Can you tell me about the man your brother was? Because I think what's really important for me on these pods when I talk to people about grief, Debs, especially around suicide, is that a lot of people from the outside, they only remember the person when they were ill and not the person when they were alive and well uh his name's sean sean mcmanus and uh suicide leaves a pain that doesn't go because it feels needless it feels just such a, a waste actually of what was a really good man he was um he was always slightly anxious and he would ruminate about stuff from teenage years he lived just a mile away from where we were brought up he was he he would still go home and see mum when she was alive and then dad when he was alive and i think he was with his first serious girlfriend he was a director in a construction company. He was a quantity surveyor, very successful, very responsible job, fantastic house, no kids, adored his dog, (laughs) played golf a lot. (laughs) Him and my dad used to talk about golf a lot and bore me rigid. Um, (laughs) We had a normal relationship. I took the piss out of him a lot when I was his big sister. And then as we grew out of the teenage years, we'd go to gigs together. I remember us going to see Paul Weller together when he was doing a warm-up tour for Tea in the Park. And I remember we were, before I I got married, we were both single on a New Year's Eve and we went out and just got absolutely battered together. We were both ravers. We'd go clubbing together and all that kind of stuff. But he was far more anxious than me. He would, just his personality, that's what we thought. And then... We used to call him a hypochondriac because he stopped eating sugar because he, he had really good teeth. We always have in our family, it's obviously genetic. He had really good teeth <laughs> and then he got worried about his teeth decaying. So he just stopped eating sugar completely. And I used to take the piss and like send him chocolate bars and all sorts of stuff, do you know what I mean? Just <laughs> as sisters do, his siblings do and whatever. But he became more and more obsessed with his health, bizarrely enough. And then he was a mad cyclist really into it as a hobby uh, so much that for for years and years him and his partner would spend two weeks of their year in France and he would do a leg of the Tour de France he had stupidly light frames for bikes he it was his absolute hit that and golf is is what he uh, adored and then he got a pain in his hip which is associated with Olympic level cyclist I mean this guy was unbelievably fit like stupidly fit Uh, and he got a pain in his hip he went to the doctors and he got prescribed painkillers okay so that was that and then he started to pick the phone up to me a lot which looking back is obviously an indicator 
And not only am I his sister, I'm also a psychologist. So he would talk to me about, I've got this pain. I'd be like, bro, fine. You've got private insurance up the wazoo. Go and see a specialist. So he booked in to see a specialist. And it was the specialist that looks after the cycling team for Team GB. Wow. So not exactly low level. So this is like (laughs) the one, you know, if you've got this pain, that's where you go. Thought nothing of it. And then timing is an absolute fucker. But he phoned me. He'd been to see the doctor. He kept phoning me and saying he was worried about it. I was like, bro, it's fine. Okay, talk it through. Would I be on the phone to him for an hour and a half? It, it'll all be okay. And I just think, oh, it's just Sean. As soon as he sees his specialist and he tells him it's going to be fine. And that's how his pattern was. He would get really worried about stuff. He'd walk into the doctor's. I would tell him to get off Dr. Google. He would walk into the doctor. <laughs> the doctor would go, you're going to be okay. He'd come out. And then I wouldn't hear from him for months again. You know, it was just, just the way of his pattern. This time, he'd gone to see the doctor on the Monday. I had a phone call on the Tuesday. I was driving at the time. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, bro, I'm driving into uni. Driving somewhere, I think it was uni. I'm going to go get something. I'm at home on Thursday. I'll give him a call back on Thursday. So I hit that thing that just said, I'll call you back. You know, you can hit that message yeah. thing. I was driving, just yeah, yeah. it. Quick reply. So yeah. that was the Tuesday. Thursday morning... Where I live is beautiful when the sun shines and the kids were at the primary school, which I can literally see from my front door, surrounded by mountains. And it was a really beautiful, beautiful day. And it was the day before St. Patrick's Day. And me and my brother, because of my dad, used to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And I dropped the kids off at the primary school and I was walking back and I was literally, I know this sounds made up but it really isn't I was literally looking around at the sunshine really happy because I was going to start my PhD in a week and I was doing that sort of like oh maybe I can think about this and maybe I can dive into that and all the things that obsessive academics think of and I walked into the house and John my husband said your uncle Harry's left a message for you but the phone's dead It was a cordless phone. And I knew, I knew that something had happened to Sean because the last time I had that call from my uncle, something had happened to my dad. And then the time before that, I'd had the phone call from my uncle. Something had happened to my mum. So I'm just thinking, shit, Sean's been in an accident because he used to drive to work on the motorway a lot. And he had this brand new Audi whatever. And I, I thought, fuck, he's wrapped it around something. I knew, it sounds bizarre, I knew he wasn't alive, but I was hoping what was going to happen is when I pick that phone up, that he's going to tell me he's in hospital. He's had an accident. Your brother's in hospital. You need to come, and you need to come now. That's what I was playing in my head. And I remember sat there looking at the phone, and it was in the charger, and it was doing that thing where it was just doing that. And I sat there, and I thought, now I've got to pick it up. And I picked the phone up and phoned my Uncle Harry. And all he said was, Dad, love, Sean's dead. And I just remember the air leaving me and falling on the floor. And John John came in. Apparently, I was screaming. Um, that's my dog. She's crying because I'm crying. Um, <laughs> I'm crying. And I just, I asked, I asked him what's happened. 
And he said he hung himself last night. So I went, okay, I've got to go. Put the phone down. Or John, I think John took the phone. And I remember after that initial shock thinking, I've got to phone his girlfriend. A girlfriend's a really trivial word. They live together forever. They just haven't got married. The part is partner. Partner's <laughs> a crap word as well. Whatever. <laughs> and her mum answered the phone. And all she said to me was, why did he do it, Debs? And of course, I'm his sister. I, I, don't, I don't have any answers. But I just said, can you put me on to Lou? And the pain this girl was feeling was just immense. She was absolutely screaming. She was screaming so much. She was just asking me why, and I couldn't give her the answer. And of course, in that situation, I'm his big sister. I'm a psychologist, and someone wants me to give him the golden answer. And I have none. I have none. No answer whatsoever. And she clearly just needed to tell me that she'd found him and what had happened and and I literally just switched. I don't know what happened. I just switched into thinking, I've got to look after this girl. I'm just, and she's a fully grown woman. But I just, I, I, they immediately regressed. I, I imagined my brother in his house. He, he had a separate garage. And she was telling me how she'd come downstairs and, you know, the, the back, the, the door was locked or the window something was open and the light was on and she walked out to the garage and it had gotten upstairs. Beautiful house, you know, double garage with an upstairs and she walked upstairs and he'd hanged himself upstairs and she had to get him down and all this kind of stuff. And I immediately just went into, I, th I think, counselling mode. I was just telling her it was going to be okay. Mm. I'll sort everything out for her. I'll phone his employer. I'll make sure she's okay and... You know, and, and I, I just remember thinking, she's got to be okay. I, I've got to make sure she's financially okay. I've got to make sure she's okay. So um, I went into that. I went into making sure she was okay. And that's um, probably what I do. <laughs> I go into absolute shock and then try and make sure everyone else is okay. And that's what I did for about uh, a year. And then I ran full tilt into a wall. <laughs> and that's when everything hit me in a wonder because I realised that I'd been the one trying to protect my children and get divorced and go through court. I'd been the one that delivered the eulogy at my mum's funeral and helped my dad sort that out. I'd been the one that helped my now husband get contact with his own children through his divorce well before me it was six years before me but helped him get through that I'd been the one that delivered my dad's eulogy and I was also the one that had delivered my brother's eulogy at the ripe old age of 42 and yet I'd never stopped even my supervisor mm. said to me uh, last year the first meeting I'd had with you about your PhD was really sorry I missed last week's meeting, but my brother hung himself. And she said, and she just, she, I remember her saying to me, do you need to delay till next year? And I went, no, I'm going to be fine. I just need to crack on. 
And I just, I just cracked on. I just did that. Just said so matter of factly. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think I had yeah. to. I think that was my way. Inside, I was absolutely screaming, but I was high functioning PTSD. It's autopilot. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. Was just, that's what it sounds like. It was just yeah. any, it's an absolute avoidance tactic. I'll make myself very busy and responsible. <laughs> you know, mm. I will just carry on doing that. But it had become so oppressive as an illness that when the postman rocked up at around lunchtime every day, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't breathe because usually that's when the court orders came through of you're now going back to court. So that had manifested like that. I couldn't go to the door. I, I dreaded the post coming. I couldn't answer the landline because I was thinking, what's the next shitty conversation I'm going to have on that phone? Who's left? It started to manifest itself in ways that were being preventative to me and getting on with my life. And then I can't even remember the trigger that stopped it, but I just remember having this thought over and over again that my world was getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And then I became aware of the way I was thinking. And I think it's only because of what I do that I was able to kind of step outside of what was going on. And I actually started to have suicidal thoughts. And I was actually planning how to do it. And that's when I thought, whoa, something horrendous is happening now. I remember coming downstairs, the, the kids had gone to school and I just could not stop crying. I couldn't breathe. It was that proper, really ugly, snotty <gasps> crying. And I remember <laughs> saying to John, <laughs> you need to get the crisis team. And he looked at me and he went, what? And I said, you need to call the crisis team. And bless him, he took me to the GP. And I know my GP very well. And I sat there, again, sobbing and snotty. And she said to me, where are we, Debs? And I said, I just cannot, cannot do this anymore I can't I can't get out of bed I can't get into bed I can't pick the phone up I can't put the tv on I can't put the radio on I just want to sleep forever I don't want to be here anymore and she said do you need some medication and I said yeah I need some medication and I need to talk to someone but I couldn't talk to someone because my head was so full of all the thoughts and everything else that was going on that, again, just like when I was in the abusive relationship, there was no spare cognition to get me out of it. I'd loaded it and locked it away, loaded it and locked it away, loaded it and locked it away till there was no more space to load or lock away. So it had all just exploded. It had all just come out in one big bang and I had no resources left. I had nothing. And that's when the doctor said to me, it was actually the, in the crisis team and she went through all these things and I know all the, the questions, I know what she's coming to. And she just asked me outright, I would diagnose you as post-traumatic stress disorder. And I said, and I would agree. 
And I remember mm. just sobbing. And she asked me, have you, have you planned? Have you been thinking about a plan? And I said, yeah. And she said, okay, tell me your plan. And it wasn't anything extraordinary. I didn't want to do it in the house. I didn't want to take pills. I didn't want to be so horrible that someone that might discover me would be traumatized by it. Mm. All I wanted to do was walk to the top of the mountain here where there's a tarn, there's a lake. No one barely knows it's there, but it's icy cold. It's freezing cold. And I wanted to get into the water and stop. That's all I wanted to do. And when I told her that, it was nothing extraordinary. And I'm thinking, no one's going to believe me because it isn't this fanciful, massive story. And actually, it just being so simple, I think, is what made her go, okay, now we need to get medication and now we need to get you treatment. And that's what I did. Before we reflect on your journey, Debs, I just want to ask you one final question on your dad and your brother, if we can. And I know this will be a difficult one, but I know they are listening to this pod somewhere. I'm, I'm sure they are. If they were, and what would you say to either of them? And what do you think they'd say to you? Um, I miss them every day, every single day. There's something, sometimes it's not... Well, most of the times now it's not sad. Most of the times now it's funny. I couldn't listen to dance music for such a long time because it, it reminded me of Sean. And now when certain tunes come on, I start laughing because we used to do this stupid dance in the... If we were in the same club and a certain tune came on, we would run towards each other and do this silly dance where we touch feet and then turn around and touch heels and this kind of stuff. And I started teaching it the kids recently. And so they do in the kitchen. So it's it does move on. As much as you still miss them immensely, you know, you can you can start having those funny moments. And I find myself saying the sayings that my dad used to say. And you can relax with your grief. You know, it's the grief doesn't go away, but you can actually remember the happy stuff without being desperately sad all the time. What I would also like to say to them is I'm I'm really glad I got the time with them that I did. They were both extraordinary people ordinary and extraordinary yeah so I miss them madly I'm doing really well I'm okay I've got a fabulous family (laughs) I think you are Debs Uh, I've got a fabulous family I'm married to an incredible man now who supports me fully in everything that I do and beyond he shares the same humor as my dad so I'm still suffering the dad jokes and stuff Um, I've got incredible friends an incredible job. I love what I do. As much as I have had some immensely painful and traumatic events, I've got an extraordinary life. And again, both of those men played a giant part of that. And as a final question before we move on from this topic, Debs, how have all these experiences shaped you into the person you are today? And if you could go back and talk to that Debs who was struggling with her dad's death or the woman who was being domestically abused or the Debs having to represent herself in court. What would you say to her knowing what you do now? I'd give her two pieces of information, actually, not not advice. One is you are stronger than you know. You're going to get through this shit. And the second one is, is you will use this to help others. This will culminate in something where you can change things for more people than you'll even be aware of. So, uh, yeah, 
I do, as much as I wouldn't wish that on anybody, I know a lot of people that have been through various types of trauma, some similar to mine, some completely different. And most of them are gold. Most of them have taken their experience. I truly believe I'm a better person for adapting to my trauma, not for being subjected to it, but certainly for adapting to it. And I know so many people. And it gives you two things, these types of trauma. It gives you a real empathy with people. It allows you to look at people and understand their suffering and be able to put your hand on them and say, I get it, you're okay. Which is immensely powerful to look into someone's eyes and say, yeah, I get it. And I know what you're going through is just allows people to exhale, to let go a little bit and, and, and get some relief. But it also gives you a bullshit detector where <laughs> you can, you know, I, I always say I can smell a narcissist from three miles away, let alone oh, yeah. see them. So I think it gives you it gives you three things. It gives you immense empathy. It gives you a bullshit detector, but it also gives you a capacity to be able to take on anything. The worst thing that can happen to me now is something to John, my kids, or my friends. And as much as it terrifies me, any of those things happening, I know I'd get through it some way or another. And I think that allows you to not sweat the small shit. <laughs> it allows you to look at things and think, yeah, not, no not getting involved in that. It gives you a huge amount of perspective that I don't think you would get if everything in your life had gone right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to part one of Deborah Powney's podcast. If you'd like to know how a story continues, listen to part two where we talk all about Deborah's academic work and the work she does on domestic abuse. <laughs>